the title that just says the parable of the lost son. Okay. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the land, in the whole country, and he, bega- and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms round him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Uh, good, good morning. Um, it's great to be with you this morning. It's good to see uh, so many people here. I'm, um, I've printed this really big because my eyesight is getting worse and worse. The plan was that I wouldn't have to put my glasses on. I tried reading it again this morning. Uh, the glasses are going to have to go on. But um, when I look up, I can't see any of you lot. Um, so I'm constantly So, yeah, anyway, you're going to probably have to bear with me on that. Um, before we come and look at this passage, let's, uh, let's uh, pray uh, for God's help uh, to help us uh, hear and understand what he's saying to us this morning. Uh, thank you, Heavenly Father, that you uh, love us so much. Uh, thank you that you have given your son Jesus to us. And thank you um, for this story that he told uh, while he was on earth. Thank you that he uh, told it um, for the benefit of those that were there, but um, through uh, the centuries, we uh, have also benefited from it. And um, yeah, we thank you so much uh, for your word. I pray that you would impress it deeply on our hearts now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're going to be uh, looking at the, the parable of, uh, of the lost son, um, as it's entitled here in the NIV. Um, And we're looking at Luke chapter 15 uh, in two sections. Uh, So the first section this week, uh, and then uh, Neil's going to lead us uh, in the second part of this this story that Jesus tells in in two weeks' time. 
And this chapter of of Luke is very well known. It's a collection of stories that Jesus tells about things uh, that are lost. We've got the lost sheep, uh, we've got the lost coin, and in this section today, the NIV have headed it, uh, the lost son. They're nice and neat uh, headings, um, but the heading uh, for the story we're looking at today, um, I would suggest, is actually completely wrong. I'm no English expert, uh, but when you look at how um, the story starts and how Jesus starts this story in verse 11, he says, there is a man who had two sons. Uh, Now, if Rachel Knight was here, I'm sure she would uh, correct me, but um, if you start a story with the object being a man, um, then the main object of that sentence is the first person that you introduce. So the main point of this story uh, is the man. And then we get some additional information that he had two sons. So I would uh, suggest to you that the heading in the NIV Bible, which is not actually God's word, uh, could be corrected here. So if you've got a pen, feel free to deface it. Uh, You can either put it, um, if you're feeling less brave, you can just put an extra S on the end of son, because it's about two sons. The man has two sons. It's not just about one. So stick an S on the the end of sons. Or if you want to be really radical, I'm sure Steve won't mind, you can cross it out altogether and put the parable of the father and his two sons. Um, Because that's what it's about. It's about the father and his two sons. Now we're uh, just going to look at the younger son uh, this morning. And like I said, Neil then is going to look at the relationship between the father and the older son. But in both sermons, it's really important to note that what Jesus wants us to focus on is the father. He starts the story with the father, uh, and then he goes on to explore the relationship that these two sons have with their father. So if you've always remembered this as the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son, let's try and reframe our thinking. This is a story all about the father and his relationship with his two sons. So before we dive into some of the detail of of this story that Jesus tells, uh, we need to remember uh, the context in which Jesus decides to tell this. Um, Jesus made this story up. Uh, It's not a real thing. It's a piece of fiction that Jesus made up. It's a story that he wanted to tell to a group of people that were around him at the time. Uh, And we notice that at the beginning of chapter 15, there are two different types of people. So if you look at um, page 1048 at the start of chapter 15, uh, there are two groups of people that are gathering around Jesus to listen to him. There's the tax collectors and sinners, uh, and there are also Pharisees in verse 2 and teachers of the law. And the sinners are there listening to Jesus, and the Pharisees are there listening to Jesus, but they're also doing something else. Uh, they are muttering about the fact that Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. And now the, the old King James Version of the Bible uses a, a better word, I think. It uses the word murmuring. Uh, so this is your chance to interact with me. Just say the word murmuring a few times with me just now, okay? Or out loud, murmur, 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 That's exactly what the sound would have been, wouldn't it? It's just the word murmur sounds like exactly what... So there's the Pharisees there, and Jesus is talking to these, and they're, they're just murmuring in the background. They're muttering about Jesus. They're not happy that Jesus welcomes these types of people, these tax collectors, these sinners that are there. So Jesus tells this story to both people in his audience. This story is not just for the sinners that are sitting near his feet. This story is for those and also for the Pharisees that are there murmuring in the background. 
And they're outraged that Jesus welcomes these people. And not just welcomes them, but he eats with them as well. This isn't just Jesus tolerating these people. This is not just Jesus putting up with these sinners. This is Jesus associating with them, choosing to them, being friends with them in the same way that you would invite friends around for Sunday dinner. So there's this mixed and diverse audience for the first time this story was told. And we also need to remember the culture and the time period that this story was told in as well. And because we live in such an individualistic society, and because our society is very different from the family-orientated society in which this story was first told, some of the sense of outrage that the first listeners would have, would have had in listening to this story, I think, is a bit lost on us. As Jesus told this story, there would have been sharp intakes of breath at some of the things that he said. There would have been shaking of heads from his audience as throughout Jesus describes two assaults on the Father by these sons. And uh, I've called them assaults because that's exactly what they are. So we're going to look at this first assault on the Father by the younger son. If you look at verse 12, um, the younger son says to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So let's just consider this request by the younger son. When he asks for his share of the estate, he's asking for what is due to him as his inheritance. Uh, As we all know, uh, an inheritance only comes to you when someone dies. So it's clear uh, that Jesus' listeners would know straight away that what this son is saying to the father here is, I want you dead so that I can have your stuff. And this is a totally outrageous request by the younger son. Uh, One commentator that I read uh, writes about this from the perspective of a Middle Eastern patriarchal family system at the time. He says that if a son made this type of demand from his father, the only expected response from the father would be that he'd drive his son from the family with verbal and, if necessary, physical blows. This is an outrageous request by the younger son. And we need to think about, again, the context of this request uh, at the time that Jesus was telling this story. So when he asks for his inheritance, um, this isn't just the case of the father going to the local bank, withdrawing all the cash that he's got and saying, okay, that's what I uh, am going to give you. That The younger son asks for his share of the estate. Everything about the wealth of this family is tied up in their land. And the next sentence shows that the father had to divide his property uh, in order to grant the son's request. Now again, in all of the commentaries that I read on this passage, the commentators note that Jesus uses a particular word for property. Um, So the NIV has has said that he's divided his property. That's the word it uses there. But the original word that Jesus uses, the Greek word, uh, is the word bios, uh, which is where we get our word biology from. It literally means life. It says the father divided his life. See, in those days, your land and your property defined who you were as a family. The land you owned, it was your family name. It it wasn't actually land that you owned. It's more that you belonged to that land. It was what defined you. And that's why we see in the Bible time and time again that in the Old Testament, when, when land is sold or when land disappears from the family, it actually means the dissolving of that family. 
think back to the, the book of Ruth where Naomi's husband dies and then her two sons die and she's forced to, to leave the land. Um, the, it, it, the whole family is dissolved, the land is gone, everything is tied together. See, land passed from the father to the son uh, and the older son, uh, who got a double share of the inheritance, uh, it was his responsibility to keep that land. That's why he got a double share. You keep the land in the family. It was the only way of maintaining your livelihood. You couldn't just go out and, and generate wealth in the same way that we can today. Wealth was generated through the land. It was good land. It was healthy livestock. It was that that, that gave you your income. And it's in, that, it was that that ensured your family's survival. So this younger son's request was that his father gives up a third of the land for him. And that's why Jesus uses the term life instead of just property. See, this request literally ripped the family apart. The life of this family was divided by this request. This also cost the father status. It would have been a, a huge loss of reputation to lose that much land. The whole village would know what the younger son had requested and what the father had had to do in order to grant that request. This would have been the scandal of the year. And you can see now why this has been termed as a, an assault on the father. This is not just a polite request by the younger son. This is a request that tears the family apart. The son says to his father, I'm only really interested in what I can get from you. I want your stuff, and the only way that I'm going to get to use it in the way that I want is if you're dead, and I can't wait for that to happen. And what do you think the two groups of listeners would have thought of the younger son at this point? Well, the Pharisees would have been standing there muttering and murmuring and thought, well, yeah, this is a story for, for those people that are sitting near Jesus' feet. This is a story about a sinner, definitely. And I should imagine the sinners that are sitting at Jesus' feet are thinking, this bloke sounds like an even bigger scumbag than us. And to really drive home the point, Jesus goes on to say that what the son does with the father's wealth, when the father grants this audacious request, he goes off to a distant country. The son leaves Israel. He goes off to a pagan Gentile country. The wealth of the promised land is squandered. Again, the word is literally scattered in a distant country on wild living. Uh, if you turn to verse 30, this is the way the older son uh, talks about his, his younger brother. Uh, in verse 30, he says, He has squandered your property with prostitutes. Notice he doesn't say that he spent his money on prostitutes. He says he has squandered the family's property, the family's property on, on this. In the Greek, it literally reads, This son of yours having devoured your bios, having devoured your life with harlots. You see how Jesus is using this? He said that you, you've given him your life and he's wasted it. You've not just given him property, you've given him life and he's gone out there and he's scattered it and he's treated it with utter contempt. His youngest son has shown no regard for the cost and the value of what the father has given him. And it's the same word picture that God uses in the Old Testament for his people Israel. When he describes them and, and refers to them as being like an unfaithful wife that's gone off after illicit relationships with other nations. 
And if the original listeners were thinking that Jesus couldn't make this younger son sound any worse, he goes on to say that when the money runs out, in verse 14, he then goes to hire himself out to a Gentile and go and feed pigs. This is the ultimate loan. This son now really has become the scum of the earth. He's the, I wouldn't touch him with a barge pole type of person. Think of, of what the newspapers would refer to him as in, in the headlines of today. If we can translate this across as to the level that this, this younger son has sunk to, well, if, you think, if you're struggling to think of the headlines, maybe, maybe this is controversial, but think about what the headlines were to describe Jimmy Savile uh, after all of that came out about him. He was described as a monster, predator, animal, disgrace, scum, vile, sick, sinner. That's who this younger son is. And it's at this point of painful deprivation that the younger son, we're told, comes to his senses. So in verse 17, uh, it says there, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, spare, and here I am, starving to death. We're told that this younger son remembers what life is like back in the father's house. He's starving to death, longing to eat the pig's food, when he remembers that even the men that his father temporarily employs on his estate are much better fed than him and even have food to spare. It's at this point of painful deprivation uh, that he comes to his senses. Uh, we've not had one of uh, C.S. Lewis's quotes for some time in one of Steve's sermons, so I thought it was about time we had one. Um, so here's one from C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. So God's whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And it's at this point of painful deprivation that he comes to his senses. And it's often the case, isn't it, that God needs to bring us to a painful place because we've just not been listening to his voice. We need to wake up to the reality of our situation. And God sometimes uses a painful situation to wake us up to the level of deprivation that we've all sunk to. I wonder if there are some here this morning who um, are incredibly respectful on the surface but have not listened to God's voice about just what we are like, each and every one of us. I wonder if there are some here this morning that clearly need to hear God's voice and come to their senses that you are not as good as you think you are. That I'm not as good as I think I am. That we all like this younger son are vile and sick sinners. Maybe it's been through painful experience that God has shown you that there is nothing that this world offers that can truly satisfy your hunger. Now, maybe you're in church this morning and you're, like this younger son, starting to come to your senses. You're starting to see something of the goodness and the generosity of God's family just weekly reflected 
here in this church family. Maybe like the younger son, it's dawning on you that, that, well, maybe life is much better back with the father. And if that's you this morning, can I urge you to, to keep listening to this next bit? Because there is a right way and a wrong way to respond to that sense of coming to your senses. There's a right way and a wrong way to respond to what you may be thinking and feeling this morning. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, Paul writes that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Paul says there's a sorrow that leads to repentance. And there's also what Paul calls a worldly sorrow which is feeling sorry for what you may have done or maybe feeling sorrow because of the consequences uh, that you're experiencing as a result of what you have done. But it isn't what the Bible calls repentance. And the next part of Jesus' story shows exactly what this worldly sorrow can look like in the younger son. He's come to his senses. He decides that it's going to be better off being back with the father. So he practices his speech to his father in verse 18. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. See, he's recognised quite rightly that his sin, first and foremost, is against God. He said, I have sinned against heaven. He has offended a holy God. And ultimately, all of our sin no matter who it's been directed at in the past, is first and foremost an offence to God. Our sin is the outworking of sinful hearts that refuse to acknowledge God as rightful ruler. Sin is just this. Sin is where we say, stuff you God, I'm in charge, no to your ways. And that's what our hearts are like. That's what this younger son is like. This is the picture that Jesus is given. And he acknowledges that he's sinned against his father. He makes no excuses. It's a good start. He recognises, firstly, that he's sinned against God. He recognises that he's also sinned against the father. So things are looking good. But it's this next bit of the speech is where we see the difference between what Paul was described as godly sorrow that leads to repentance and salvation, and worldly sorrow. Uh, Commentators and those that are much more learned than me have written much on this passage, and they've got slightly different views on on this next bit. Uh, The younger son rightly admits he's no longer worthy to be called a son of the father. He recognised that he's lost this status when he's shipped out of the family home. In fact, we're told what his status was by the father in verse 24. If you just look down at verse 24, the father says... My son was dead. That's the son's status. Uh, did, the, did the father actually believe that his son was physically dead? Well, no, that was his status. Um, he would have been considered dead to the family. And we still see this in, in Middle Eastern culture today, don't we? Um, that where children are disowned uh, by their parents because of the choices that they've made or the decisions they've made or the lifestyle that they've lived... And that the parents say, well, that child is dead to me now. 
And his first listeners to this story would have been, yep, absolutely. You're absolutely right there, Jesus. This son is no longer a son. He's dead to the father. He's dead to the rest of the family. But then this son goes on to say, well, I know I'm not a son, but make me like one of your hired servants. And as I said a bit ago, this is where the different writers uh, differ in their views. Some say that this request uh, is, is one of two different things. See, the son could have chosen a range of different levels of, of servanthood uh, that was available within the kind of the systems of the day. He could have said, make me like a bond servant. Now, a bond servant is someone uh, that was intimately connected to the family. It was the closest servant that the, a master would have had. He would have known the, the master's details. He would have known his personal matters. He would have been responsible for some of those. Uh, it was like a, a really close friendship. In fact, a bond servant would almost be like a member of the family. And this bond servant would commit their life to the master and would serve them until either one of them died. But he doesn't ask to be treated like a bond servant. Well, he could have said, well, make me like a slave. Now, this was the most common form of service. And unlike the picture that we have of slavery today, um, slavery in those days uh, was more, I guess, the, the closest thing we've, we can probably imagine is Downton Abbey, a bit, bit like being in service uh, downstairs at Downton Abbey. Um, it was a way that gave families a chance of survival. They worked for the family, and in return, uh, that household, they were given protection, uh, they were provided for, they had rights, they were paid, they could buy their own land. And in Israel, every seven years, they had the option uh, of going free. But the son doesn't ask to be a slave. The son asked to be treated like a hired servant. Uh, these are the men that the son talks about when he comes to his senses. How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Uh, these are the servants that had no ties to the family. They, I guess, were like agency workers. They came and, and, went, uh, came and went as they, they pleased. Uh, they offered themselves up for work. They were paid on a daily basis. Um, and they could take it or they could leave it in terms of which work they took and they could work for different families. And this is what the son decides he wants to be. He wants to be a hired servant. Now some people have said that this shows that in his heart, although he was coming back to the father, he wasn't truly repentant because he still wants his independence from the father. He wanted something from the father. He wanted the wages that he would have been due, but he doesn't want the father himself. Others have said that this is the son's way of trying to pay back the debt to the father to show that he was sorry. He doesn't expect to be allowed back into the household, but he wants to show the father that he's willing to pay him back. Well, whichever view you take, it's clear that Jesus is using this story to teach us that at this point, this is not true repentance. Jesus goes on to show us what true repentance and true forgiveness looks like. So let's read on. Uh, the son sets out to return to his father uh, there in verse 20. Uh, but it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now notice a few things here. How, how could the father see the son while he was still a long way off? 
what, the, what must the father have been doing on a daily basis, not knowing whether his son would be coming back or not, to be able to see him from a long way off? Danny boy. Yeah, he must have, he must have been out every day looking out for him. There's no way he could have seen him from a long way off if he hadn't been there looking for him. He spots him. And before the father has any idea what this son is coming back for, he's filled with compassion for him. Now, if you or I had an absolute waster of a son that had done what this son had done, and you see him in a distance coming back, looking all raggedy and destitute, what would the first thought that would come into your head be? He's coming back for more. Yeah, he's run out of money, and the scumbag's coming back for more. That would have been what's in, it would have been in my heart. But with absolutely no idea of why the son is coming back, the father runs towards him. He doesn't know what the son's intent is, but he's filled with compassion for him. And in those days, patriarchs didn't run. The head of the family didn't run. Um, younger men ran, children ran, but even in our day today, you know, older men don't really run, do they? We you know, at best do a dad jog. Um, but we don't really run. And in those days, running would have meant hitching up your robes, exposing your legs so that you could actually get this big long thing out of the way and legging it. And that's the picture that Jesus gives of this stately father. He exposes his legs, he disgraces himself in public, and he runs towards his son. And again, culturally in those days, the lesser always came to the greater. The younger always came to the older. The older person would stay where they were, and if you were younger, you would come to them. But here in this story, the greater runs to the lesser. This father doesn't make the son come groveling to him. The father runs to him. Here Jesus gives us a picture of a father who goes out towards the unworthy son, potentially risking further humiliation and rejection. And in compassion, the father flings his arms around him and kisses him. Uh, Now, if you've been paying attention, um, children, it's time for a bit of spot the difference. Okay? So what is different about the speech that the son gives here in verse 21 and the speech that he rehearses when he's back with the pigs in verse 19? See if you can spot it. It starts off, it's the same speech, but there's something different. See if you can spot the difference. Give you just a moment to look at it and read it. Anyone got it? Adults, hopefully you've got it as well. Anyone spotted the difference? What's the difference between the first speech and the second speech? What does he not say in the second speech? Okay, someone just shout it out for me. Oh, Ben. Excellent, well done. Make me like one of your hard servants. He leaves that bit out in the second speech, doesn't he? Okay. So at this second speech, he misses off the bit at the end about being made like a hired servant. See, the son finally gets it. When he sees the reaction of his father, when he sees the compassion of his father, when he sees the father running to him and flinging his arms around him, any thought of independence from the father or any thought of trying to pay him back goes out of his head. 
when he sees the compassionate, loving welcome of the Father, he recognises what godly sorrow that leads to repentance and salvation means. It simply means, Father, I'm wrong. I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Full stop. That's it. And then he depends on the loving mercy of his father. And what's the father's reaction to this son's confession of guilt and his recognition of his unworthiness to be called a son? Does the father tell him off? Does the father say, absolutely, you've been a scumbag? No. The father won't have any talk of him paying anything back. He immediately welcomes him back into the family. He won't have any, he won't entertain any idea of a payment. Verse 22, quick. There's an urgency about this. This is immediate. Bring the best robe, not just the first robe you find, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Notice that there's an expense to welcome this son back. It isn't just the first robe that they find, it's the best robe. Uh, The ring that was put on his finger was probably a family signet ring. Uh, It would have been the sign that you were part of the family. It would have probably had the family crest on it. Uh, It would have been the kind of thing that you would have sealed documents with. It showed that you could do business on behalf of the family. It was a sign that you were back in the family. And sandals showed that he wasn't destitute anymore. He wasn't a poor servant. He wasn't expected to to be shoeless like a servant. He was part of the family. And the fattened calf, well, that was a real extravagance. See, meat was a rarity in those days because it was so expensive. So the fattened calf uh, would have been an extravagant feast. It would have fed around 70 to 100 people. It would have been the feast of the year, probably big enough to invite the whole of the rest of the local community to. Uh, This would have been a massive event. And the father lavishes all of this on his son. The one that said, I wish you were dead. The one that said, I'm just interested in your stuff. The one who said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But this forgiveness costs Steve's told us this several times in his sermon, isn't it? Forgiveness costs. Someone's got to pay for this. See, either the son had to pay and earn his way back into the family, or to forgive him, someone else has to make that payment. And the father here takes the payment on himself. He'll have none of it of the son trying to pay his way back in. The father takes on the cost of this forgiveness. And in this story, we see here Jesus, as it were, painting himself into this story. This is the Father's heart, but this is also where we see Jesus. See, there's a reason that when Philip says to Jesus in John 14, show us the Father, that Jesus says to Philip, you only need to look at me if you want to see what the Father is like, because... I and the Father are one. See, this is the welcome that Jesus offers. This is the welcome that Jesus offers to anyone who's willing to repent and anyone 
who's come to their senses and recognises that life in the Father's house is where we need to be. See, in the Bible, we see Jesus going out in humiliation towards the lesser. We see Jesus not just exposing his legs in public shame, but being stripped naked and hung on a cross. We see Jesus in compassion for the lost, going out to the sinner, not just risking the possibility of rejection, but knowing that he would be despised and rejected by those that he came to save. See, right back at the start of this talk, we saw that Jesus was telling this story to the Pharisees who accused him of welcoming sinners and eating with them. This man welcomes sinners. This man welcomes monsters. This man welcomes predators. This man welcomes animals. This man welcomes those that are a disgrace. This man welcomes scum. This man welcomes the vile, the sick, the sinner. This man welcomes Dave Gilkerson. At 1 John 3 verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. So if you're here this morning and like the younger son, you're thinking that it would be better to return to the Father, but you're wondering whether he will have you back. Look at the welcome that Jesus gives us. Look at the welcome that we see in this story. If we're willing to humbly say, I've messed up and I'm sorry and I know that I am not worthy to be part of your family and there's nothing I can do to make it right, then our Heavenly Father runs to us and throws his arms around us and says, welcome back into the family, my child. Can I urge you, if you know that you are not part of God's family this morning, if you know that you've not yet as it were, as this story says, come to your senses that actually life is so much better in the Father's family. Will you come in this morning? Will you come into his family? Will you accept the wonderful welcome he offers? And this morning, if you are a Christian here this morning, if you're part of God's family, then what a wonderful reminder of just Jesus' utter love for us that he welcomes people like you and like me and says, welcome back into the family. How great the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, our hearts and our minds cannot fully contemplate and grasp uh, the love that you have shown us in Christ Jesus. We see something in this story of the love that you have for us. Uh, We see something of the welcome that you offer to all those who will repent and turn to you in forgiveness. And I pray, Lord, if there are those here this morning who have not yet done that, uh, that you would continue to work in their hearts, that they would not rest until they find their rest in you. Thank you that we were designed to be part of your family and that uh, all of us this morning can experience the joy 
and the delight of being loved like this, of being welcomed like this, of being home. Uh, thank you, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name.